Hi there, I'm Jason Schulman, and this is New Books in Australian and New Zealand Studies. My guest today is Tony Hughes-Daith. He's Associate Professor of English and Cultural Studies at the University of Western Australia. He's here to talk about his new book, Like Nothing on This Earth, A Literary History of the Wheat Belt. It was published in March 2017 by the University of Western Australia Publishing. Tony, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jason. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you on. So, so Tony, what is the Western Australia Wheat Belt? Okay, so in the 20th century, uh, the state of Western Australia uh, experienced a large agricultural expansion. Uh, it was an area in the southwest of Australia uh, which was cleared uh, for the production of grain in about uh, two 30-year periods between 1900 and 1930 and just after World War II. And the area of land that was cleared is roughly the size of uh, Britain. So it's a relatively substantial area and it it transformed the economic fortunes of Western Australia. How did the those two periods kind of come about? Did someone have an idea to, to use this land for a new purpose? It had always been the idea when Western Australia was first settled in 1829 for it to be an agricultural colony, but the, uh, for various reasons it, it uh, didn't eventuate, um, mainly in terms of the comparative, um, I suppose, well, I suppose the competition from other uh, agri- similarly uh, purposed colonies in North America and Eastern Australia and Southern Africa. Um, West Australia, due to its remoteness and um, poor soils, really, uh, didn't take off. So it was really uh, a gold rush that happened at the end of the 19th century in Western Australia that brought uh, hundreds of thousands of people to uh, the colony and then as it became the state in 1901 and provided the the labour to undertake what had always been wished for, which was to turn... Uh, Western Australia into a closely settled agricultural um, land. Obviously, wheat is important because it, you know, can provide us food. But, but what did growing wheat mean to Australia when the nation was founded? Early part of Australia's, um, I guess, iconic agricultural history was um, a pastoral uh, mythology. So things to do with sheep and cattle and droving and uh, shearing and these sorts of things. Um, the, the growing of grain wasn't particularly well regarded. I think it had certain associations with um, European feudalism and toil and uh, it wasn't. But with the beginning of the 20th century, a, a kind of a new ideology of, of wheat growing sprang rapidly into existence and it became quite uh, emotive. So people felt like they were really feeding the people of the world by growing wheat. And there was a whole uh, romance around wheat as a, um, as a, as a natural and, and um, uh, improving way of living. So, yeah, it, 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 it fed into the new national uh, – Australia became a nation in 1901 – so it fed into Australian nationalism, but it also fed into a certain ag- agrarian uh, yeah, impulses within settler colonialism in Australia. 
Your, your book looks at the cre- creative writing of those who lived in the wheat belt at various points in their lives and, and then wrote about that experience. Why a literary or creative look at the wheat belt rather than a strictly economic or geological one? Well, I'm a, a literary person by profession, I suppose, and I've always been interested in the relationship between literature and culture. And when I read a when I also became interested in the wheat belt, um, I kind of kept meeting a certain sort of uh, triumphalist history about how the land was conquered and um, and grain production became ever greater and te- techn- technological advantages were you know, transforming the landscape and so on. But I guess it left me wondering, what did this all feel like to people? And I feel that only literature provides a, an interior picture of uh, social events or socio-ecological events like uh, the creation of, of the wheat belt. So that's why I turn to literature, and I think that's a case I make in the book itself, that uh, literature provides a unique document in, in terms of understanding how people felt about things. I was particularly interested in the way that uh, people felt about the act of clearing um, just as a bit of a background, the, uh, there wasn't, it wasn't a prairie landscape that people just um, got out their ploughs and um, started um, swapping one kind of grass for another. Um, the southwestern of Western Australia is, a, um, is an open uh, woodland, but it's a highly um, evolved and uh, d- densely speciated um, ecosystem, which is uh, existed for millions of years, so it's uh, it was actually a, a huge loss uh, when it was uh, cut and burnt and destroyed to create the uh, the fields. So I was interested in how that was documented, I guess, from the inside, and I turned to literature for for, um, for trying to understand that. Mm-hmm. And, and you selected eleven writers who have. Uh you know, lived in and written about the wheat belt from its beginnings in the early 1900s until the 20, 21st century. How did you select the writers? There's probably the, the most prominent writers, more or less. Uh, but I was also trying to um, step through the through the period. So I tried to get writers to speak, I guess, to successive decades of the 20th century, really. So I was trying to find writing that gave us a picture into the uh, turn of the century period, period immediately before the war and after the uh, the Great War, that is, and just kind of move through decade by decade. Uh, the writers overlap a fair amount, it must be said, but there was that chronology that uh, I wanted to um, cover, I suppose, and, and use the writers to provide a sort of insight into each of those moments. Um, but, yeah, they're also probably, uh, with one or two exceptions, uh, the, the most prominent writers. Did the length of stay in the wheat belt or, or when in their lives they lived in the wheat belt um, matter for when they wrote about the wheat belt? There are a number of variables, I guess, uh, but I think that those two things, uh, uh, the the time in their life that they stayed and the length are certainly amongst them. Um, it seemed to matter if you were born there. And so I have a writer like Dorothy Hewitt who, who's, who was born there and spent the first 11 years of her life there and never went back really, but 
never stopped writing about the wheat belt. So sometimes you get a child's impression. Albert Face is another one who's has, you get a child's view. And the thing, the particular forms of, um, or particular way that, that, um, um, acts on memory, I suppose, if it's a childhood experience. Yeah, I think sometimes people like uh, Peter Cowan and Jack Davis, uh, to take two other examples, they they worked there, so they they came to it in their adult lives, and yeah, and yeah. So I think there were different ways in which people were were involved in the wheat belt, but and that did affect them. But it was also, I suppose, when when they were writing, so. Sometimes people were writing 40 years after the, the point at which they uh, had lived in the wheat belt. So their, their available literary forms at that time had changed as well. So that's another thing that's going on in the book. We have literary modernism, we have social realism, we have um, expressionist drama, uh, postmodern poetry. So quite a, a range of different literary forms to, um, to work with. Mm-hmm. You mentioned Jack Davis, and, and you write that Jack Davis allowed us to see the black wheat belt for the first time. Can you tell us a little bit about, about who he is and his work? So Jack Davis was what, uh, part of that generation of Aboriginal intellectuals that came uh, into prominence in the lead-up to the 1967 referendum to recognise Aboriginal citizenship. So he was part of that. Uh, he'd spent the early part of his life um, in the southwest. His father worked in a timber mill and was actually a citizen, uh, but was an Aboriginal man from the Pilbara. Uh, Jack Davis had gone uh, with his brother, been sent by his father to go and learn agricultural work at a place called um, Moor River Native Settlement, which is a, a notorious uh, I guess, a- Aboriginal concentration camp as it, as it came to be viewed in uh, later years. But he went in good faith to, to think he was learning agriculture, but uh, quickly apprehended that this was little more than a prison camp. Uh, then he went into the wheat belt. With, with After his father died, he went with his mother's relatives and lived with uh, the Noongar people who and did kind of seasonal agricultural work that was done by Indigenous people there, which involved clearing and uh, fencing and the, some of the basic work of putting uh, the wheat belt together. Uh, but in terms of a literary figure, uh, after yeah, be, after being a kind of politician and activist, I suppose, he started writing poetry in the 70s uh, and then wrote a series of plays, um, no Sugar, The Dreamers, Kulak, which are really sort of uh, landmark uh, Aboriginal plays. They're much studied at, at high school now in Australia. And, uh, yeah, he kind of came to prominence there and wrote about New Norcia and um, and native and the native settlement at uh, Moor River. And and it's through, it's through Jack Davis in lots of ways that we understand the period of the Stolen Generation so, but no one had really thought of him as a wheat belt writer. Uh, so that's, I guess, what what I've done. That's different in my book in terms of Jack Davis. Mm-hmm. It's not uncommon for a, a literary scholar like yourself to focus on the relationship between literature and place. But but why do you think that the wheat belt has not received uh, you know this type of scholarly reception before? I think, I think that there's a few reasons. Um, I mean, I think it's not uncommon. 
Uh, well, I think literary regionalism in Australia is not quite as developed as it is in North America. Um, but, and I think we're still, I would argue that we're still uh, evolving uh, ways of doing that. So there wasn't, what's tended to happen in Australia is that we had a, if you like, generic bush um, nationalism. Uh, and writing was typically keyed into, to, so someone like Albert Facey that I look at was kind of, his story was an archetypal bush narrative where he went out into the bush and um, and battled against the land. But there's been less uh, less work in Australia. There are, again, there are exceptions to this I could go into, but where where writers have been um, more closely keyed into the concerns of what was going on in particular regions. And Australia, I think, uh, has struggled with the idea of regions and what they meant because um, there was a kind of commonality in some ways to the, the settlement pattern that was taking place across Australia. So it's taking us a little while, I think, to unpick that. Uh, so I think my work here with the Wheat Belt is, is, a, is a sustained attempt to try and, um, you know, develop cl- close connections between what's going on uh, in a particular part of Australia through a particular uh, set of circumstances and a particular set of writers. So I think um, I'm not sure if there's anything... It's intriguing, certainly, that the uh, the number of writers to come out of the wheat belt is uh, is overrepresented. So people like Hewitt and Cowan and uh, Davis and uh, Kinsella, they for for a relatively sparsely populated and fairly recent region. Uh, it, it, it's intriguing, in fact, that there are so many uh, good writers to have come out of that that place. That is really interesting. So this is maybe a tough question, but having looked at kind of the the past and the literary depiction of the wheat belt, what, what does the future of the wheat belt hold? It's challenging in lots of ways. I mean, the the wheat belt is, uh, by its own terms, uh, in terms of the production of grain, is is successful, uh, and it's even though large parts of land have been lost to salinity and other kinds of land degradation um, because of um, improvements in uh, in science, they're still able to grow more wheat than ever, and that's in spite of a, a generally dry and climate. So that in terms of the production of wheat, in, that, in terms of that instrumental goal, you would have to say the future of the wheat belt looks good. Uh, it's basically been a pretty much an upward trajectory for some time now. The problem is that because of the nature of settlement and the nature of farming, um, there's less and less people needed to do the work. Uh, it's now done on a massive industrial scale with huge machinery. The land is relatively flat, um, not quite at the stage where the um, equipment drives itself, but it more or less does. It's all all the tractors and the harvesters are driven by, um, you know, um, GPS tracking and so on. So the, it's an odd situation, I suppose, where the um, the wheat is is coming in uh, more than ever, but there's less and less people. So the towns are dying. Uh, so there's a kind of a gap has opened up in the original logic, which was to create a landscape that would would settle people, 
uh, and produce wheat. And what we've ended up with perhaps is a landscape which produces wheat without needing people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, so that's that's the human side. There are also a number of, I guess, ecological challenges uh, that that um, you know that continue pre- to present themselves. But um, for me, the, the big ecological damage was the, the sheer fact of doing the wheat bulb. That's already taken place. So uh, I think actually we're in a stage, as far as ecology goes, of uh, reparation, which is a good thing. Tony, I want to thank you for coming on the show today. That's Tony Hughes-Daith. His new book is Like Nothing on This Earth, A Literary History of the Wheat Belt. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.